Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking to Aving Ng, author of Our Laundry, Our Town, My Chinese American Life from Flushings to Downtown, Stage and Beyond. How are you doing today? Oh, very well, thank you. Honored to be here. Thank you, Deidre. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Sure. Yes, I'm, I'm a, a lifelong New Yorker. Uh, my, my parents were immigrants from uh, from southern China, from uh, the Toisan village outside of uh, Guangzhou. And uh, back then, they, they were the first generation right after the first, and I would say, God help us, the last American law that made it illegal for one race of people to become citizens here. Of course, that was the, the Chinese Exclusion Act. So that really uh, covered everything, uh, colored everything for us, where how my parents saw the world, and of course, how they taught me. But because I'm the youngest of five, uh, for better or for us, I, I had a lot of freedom. A lot, a lot, a lot of freedom to do different things, and um, and that led me to we we even though where I grew up, uh, Flushing, the Flushing uh, neighborhood of, of Queen in the borough of Queens in New York City, in the eighties and nineties it became New York City's second Chinatown. But when I was growing up, we we were one of the few Asian families there. So, like everyone, I wanted to fit in, and um, I regret it now. But I refused to learn how to speak Chinese. I just wanted to fit in, but um. By the time I was getting ready to go to college, it was ironic that uh, suddenly, for the first time in my life, everybody looked like me, but I couldn't communicate with anyone because they were all immigrant Chinese. I spoke primarily, primarily Mandarin, and also all my family spoke uh, Toisonese. It's a small dialect of uh, Cantonese. Sometimes I'd say it's almost like uh, like Creole French or something. Where uh, so it was, I learned a lot about assimilation and uh, immigration in America in the late twentieth century. I often joke that uh, I worked so hard to fit in and. Uh, by the time I got there, there was no there there. So that led me to, uh, to this book came a long way where I'm, I'm, I'm primarily a playwright and performer. And now I call myself an, an acoustic punk rock tour. I tell stories and play my songs. And but uh, I first started doing two uh, autobiographical stage uh, monologues, one person shows. One was called The Flushing Cycle, and one was called The Last Emperor of Flushing. And so in doing those two, um, it really got me thinking about my own story. And I grew up loving music, particularly rock and roll. And um, I always made an analogy between playwrights and songwriters, where I felt like a songwriter and the play, the song and the play can always be reinterpreted in many different ways, all different styles, idioms, and everything, just like a play. So I guess after after years of touring uh, as a performer, I said I wanted to make a record, make a, a more permanent uh, record of, of these stories. And also, what I, well, I love the theater because it's literally common ground. We all have to sit in the same space, breathe the same air, and really share the same energy. I love the intimacy of a book. It's just one-to-one, mind-to-mind experience wherever you want to experience it and in your own time. So that led me to, to do this as, as a prose project. So that's a little roundabout way of saying how we got to here. 
Now, you talked about growing up in the laundry. There were lots of things going on. Describe a busy day for us. Sure. Well, it was it was um there was always people coming in, and uh, we had to wrap the clothes. And I think again, because I'm the youngest of five, and it was, it was quite a quite a large span. Because uh, my uh, sibling number one, my oldest brother, he's uh, 15 years older than I am. So in some ways, we had like a two sets of families. The first three siblings were born in succession within three years, and then I was born later on. So by the time I, I grew up, actually, we were uh, in some ways we the laundry was a uh, more of a more of a middleman, if you will. Like we were just uh, taking the the dirty laundry, taking the clothes. We would sort it uh, according to the customer's codes, and, and then uh, it would get wrapped up to get most of it to get washed outside. People would pick it up outside, and then we would wash some things inside the laundry. So it was a lot of sorting. And then when we came back, we'd do some ironing and packing up the um, the packages. So there was a, a lot to do, and it really grew out of. Uh, it, there's not many Chinese hand laundries left now, certainly not in New York City or around, but uh, back in the early 20th century, before my parents got here, it was, it was a primary source of labor for so many um, uh, immigrant Chinese, because like a lot of the immigrants, they had to do the literally the, the dirty work in this case, like the jobs that other people did not want to do. So that's what we took, took on there. And yes, it was, it was the 70s and 60s, so it was still like the end of the Cold War. So uh, sometimes we had to put up with a lot. People would open the laundry door and just sort of yell epithets and real slurs at us. So um, I learned a lot about that too, because, you know, only one of my parents spoke English. My father spoke English. So he was on the front line of laundry. He was he would be in the front room where the customers would come in. And a lot of the family business and my mother, they stood behind him. And so I learned a lot about the way of the world of how my parents interact with the customers and in turn the world. So the laundry was a very fascinating place. Now, you brought back memories of the black and white TV shows. How did those shows influence your life? Oh, well, first of all, I, uh, you know, back then, um, TV was and probably still is the best uh, ESL, what they, what they used to call ESL, English as a Second Language Teacher. I believe now it's um, e, uh, EOL, English as Another Language, EAL. But um, So my immigrant parents, they had the TV, and I... I am named after the Alvin Chipmunk cartoon character. So um, that's how deep the, the TV ran for us, too, because um, uh, the rumor has it that when, when, when the previous my previous sibling, the, um, his name is Herman, but he wasn't named after the uh, after the uh, it would have been convenient to say he was named after Herman Munster, but he's named after the uh, the cartoon character Herman. And because um, because the older siblings named him and not my parents, they let my brother Herman name me and and. His favorite TV show was Alvin and the Chipmunks. And I was just grateful that his favorite shows weren't like Captain Kangaroo or Leave it to Beaver. So you know, TV was a big influence. And then, yeah, so there was always that black and white TV on in, in the house. And then, then later on, I, TV became, you know, our, for so many young people, like it's uh, for kids, it's your window onto the world. And even though he wasn't, I learned later that the, the TV series Kung Fu, even though he was played by David Carradine, I was so hungry for any uh any representation of people, any role models that I so loved that, oh my God, as, as a seven-year-old, uh, you know, you know the, the, the full issues and complexities of representation were not clear. Of course, I was seven years old, but I was so excited that there was a an, what I perceived to be a Chinese uh, like hero on TV. I've since learned later on it was not, but that was a, a big turning point. Now, Bruce Lee, martial arts and rock and roll. Tell us about that growing up. Yes, it was everywhere. Bruce Lee just changed the uh, changed the entire cultural conversation where suddenly he was this international star. But I guess in some ways, too, while he was great and this and that, um, he was too 
I think he was a little bit much for me at seven years old because he was so he was so strong and so um so so um combative. Where I, I I was a very passive person. I still am a very passive person. So that sort of um, intimidated me. But I guess feeling like um, growing up as an feeling like always an outsider again. We one of the few Asian families in our neighborhood. Uh, so I, I really felt like a, a total outsider. So of course, a lot of outsiders gravitated towards the arts and, and music. And in my case, it was a lot of rock and roll, particularly punk rock in the 1970s. And that was a place where for the first time I, I fit in, I found a community that said, okay, we're not going to hide our otherness anymore. We are here to shout about our otherness and celebrate it. And that really, that was a very liberating thing to find these communities through the arts and music. And then, that also led to uh, the burgeoning Asian American movement. It's an, of course, that grew out of the civil rights movement. And by the time I got more involved, like after college in the 1980s, I, that was also an, another f- further deepening and acceptance of, of my identity and my uh, viewpoint really, really validated so many things. So getting involved in first the punk rock worlds and then the Asian American arts and activism worlds really um, helped, helped ground me. Chinese culture and fruit. Tell us about this. Yes, it's always there. The, the fruit, the fruit, and you say food or fruit? Fruit. Fruit. Your yeah, fruit, it's, it's, it's always there. Like, and of course, as a kid, the last thing you want to eat is fruit, but uh, it was always prevalent. Like, we always, um, almost like the peeling of the orange represents like a new day. It was, it was always prevalent. There was always tangerines around, particularly around the new year. There's all sorts of, it's always like a fruit feast going on. So, fruit. And also, I think my parents, they were, they were primarily rice farms. My, my parents in our previous generations, we were all farmers. Like, we were, we were from the south, southern, southern China, so they were all farmers. So, it was such a big thing of us. Even, my family could finally afford to have a a house, a home that was separate from the laundry. And again, that's where I, I was lucky. Uh, the other siblings, they all grew up in the back of the laundry. I only spent my first like first few years in the, in the laundry. But then after that, uh, my family could afford to buy a separate home. And with that home, uh, they also had a, a backyard. And in the backyard, they um, they loved to grow fruit. They grew, they grew grapes. They grew all sorts of things. So fruit was always a big part of it. Now, in Chapter 3, you talked about your father's mother and her illegal papal son can you tell us more about that yes what it was is um it, it was a it was a common practice in the late uh late 19th and through through the mid 20th century where a lot of chinese immigration was based on being a paper son or paper daughter paper husband this was meaning you had purchased um essentially illegal identification papers to come to this country and uh and it was, this is also aided and abetted by in in, in the early in the early twentieth century, I believe nineteen oh six. There was a huge um, uh, fire in the in San Francisco, and with that, a lot of the uh, records. Of course, this is way before digitalization of all uh, public information. So, so all of a sudden, it became wide open that all these records were suddenly destroyed. So there was a lot of um, when we got back to China, people could use all these different identifications. So, so my father he, he came in and and started working in. Chinatown restaurants, New York's Chinatown, and then later on started a laundry through through a Chinatown Village Connections, excuse me, Chinese Village Connections back in Toysan, China, and um, and so that's how he came in. He came in with uh, under false pretenses. He since became a citizen. He was also a veteran, but uh, but um, so he had he had to come in that way. And again, in order to circumvent the Chinese Exclusion Act as, as a young person. So so he came in that way. And then after 65, after the Voting Rights Law and after the Civil Rights Act, too, we were, they, they were really, for the first time, they were really encouraging immigrants to have a 
family reunification. So uh, my, my family, led by my father, really tried to take advantage of that moment. He changed his, his, um, his paper name was the name of our laundry. Our laundry for all those years was uh, Fu J. Chin. Chinese hand laundry, and his name was Fu Jie Chin. And uh, he said, okay, at this point now, after 65, I'm going to change my name back to my ancestral Ang, so that way I have the same name as my mother, to try to bring her in. And that worked, and something's ever changing. In, in researching the book, I talked to a lot of my family, cousins, and siblings, and they said that the key thing, in addition to all the paperwork and all, all the, um, let's say, above-board applications, that they also had to make a contribution to a local uh, politician's campaign that really sealed the deal. Now, you talked about your mother being an arranged wife, and she didn't hear from your father for 10 years. Tell us about that. Sure. No, it was... um... I I guess it was common at that time, too, because, again, my father came over first and started working in uh, restaurants, Chinese restaurants in New York City's Chinatown. And although he was so poor by American standards, by our... Our Chinese village standards, he became a rich man. So he went back to China and uh, uh, and really had had his choice of an arranged marriage. An arranged marriage was made to my mother. And again, they were my mother was 14, my dad was 16. So it was a different world then. <laughs> they had this arranged marriage. And then after the arranged marriage, uh, I guess after the arranged wedding, my father returned to New York City and my mother did not see or hear from him for 10 years. And on stage on the page, I was shocked that I think about this, a, a young boy, you know, from a, a, tiny, a very small, poor farming village in China was in New York City with more money in his pocket than he ever imagined he would ever have in his life. I will say, I can't imagine he was uh, preparing the nest for my mother's arrival that whole time. But then because my, my, my dad had his laundry, his essentially his seed money and his, um, and his network through, through village contacts, my father, my mother was able to find out where he was. And she came over with a, um, a paper husband to pose. And she came in and, and found him and caught up with him. And then many years later, this is also in the book I got to meet. Well, I'd always met, uh, they stayed friends. The person who was my mother's paper husband who helped her get in, even though she was already in an arranged match with my dad, again, she had not heard from him for 10 years. So so she found a, a paper husband to bring her to America. And the, the family stayed in touch. And, and, and of course, as, again, as, as a child, all the stuff went completely over my head. I didn't know what was going on. But many years later, I, when, once I knew the whole picture, I, I got to see him again. Um, and... I was so thankful to him. I was so thankful that he did all that. But I asked him, I said, I said, it's fine if it was, but was your helping my mother come in, was it a financial arrangement? And he just said, no, I just wanted to help as many people as I could. And um, so it was very moving to that. So so it was a very complicated thing, the paper son, paper husband thing. And um, and, and it just grew out of, yes, arranged marriages. So it was, it was very um, a very different world. And it still is amazing to me now, like we travel with all our all our. GPS is all things, but they were they were these young kids really crossing the mighty oceans, going to places where they didn't know the language, didn't know the culture. It's still, it's uh, as I would say in the seventies, it still blows my mind. <laughs> the Chinese Bachelor Society. I thought that was interesting. Explain that. Sure, that that is a part and parcel of the. Uh, of the Chinese Exclusion Act, I would say these were the walking wounded or, or the left behind uh, the men because it was a um, they made it it got so bad like the ratio of uh, Chinese men to Chinese women in most Chinatowns after the during the Chinese Exclusion Act was all it got up as high as like twenty to one so people used to you know really 
really call this, this is not Chinese Exclusion Act. This is the Chinese Extinction Act. And uh, so they made it illegal for most Chinese uh, men to bring over their wives or to marry um, American citizens. So um, as a result, you had this enormous um, Chinatown bachelor society. And and that had a huge impact. There was all, all, all these men, even by the time I grew up, again, I grew up in Queens, which is about like 12 miles from New York City's Manhattan's Chinatown. And every Sunday, that was, again, our laundry was open six days a week, 12 hours a day. So Sunday was the only day off. So we would all almost always drive to Manhattan's Chinatown. And um, I would see my dad hanging out with these guys. Somehow, you know, I, I, I always felt... That was his natural habitat. I felt like, <clears throat> unfortunately, my parents had a very contentious arranged marriage. And um, and by the time I came along, the fifth of five, they were very tired. So they they really, um, I had a lot of freedom for better and for worse. So, and he was very uh, like lackluster around me a lot. But also when he would be with his Chinatown Bachelor Society cronies in Chinatown, he lit up. He was like a different person. And he would really, he would love hanging with them, like, you know, Know, eating and drinking, playing cards, and then at night we go see these uh, these China these Cantonese movies. And uh, so they're sadly they're all gone now. These were these great old movie houses all throughout Chinatown, and I would notice in the audience, I was like, "Wow, there's a lot of men here by themselves." Again, as a kid, I had no idea why. But now looking back, those they were the remnants of the Chinatown Bachelor Society, and um, that whole thing that again because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, followed up by McCarthyism and on all the attacks on um on Asians in general, but out of Chinese in particular, I, I used to think, why is it there? Why do my parents only socialize with other China, Chinatown people and all, only other uh, Chinese hand laundry owners? But I think it came out of that. Was, that was how they felt safe. They were, given all the all these circumstances, they had to live a under-the-radar existence. So I think that was that was imposed on them by these by these American laws and, and mores, and that, that became how our socialization was. Now, in Chapter 6, you talk about the disappearing acts and the red dress. Explain that to the audience. Yes, my, my parents, unfortunately, they, again, they had a very contentious marriage. It, it, was, it, was, sometimes it, it often led to, uh, to, to, uh, to physical violence, just um, yes, uh, fights with each other. And sometimes it would just get, it would just get to a point where my, my mother just had to leave. It was, um, and, and she would always put on a red dress. It was almost like red for the Chinese. It's a very empowering color. It, it, people always say it's almost like a, an amulet, if you will. Like it really will help you protect you. Like people even saying, um, in the beginning of the year, certain people in your Chinese zodiac, if you if it's your year, sometimes it could be a rough year in the beginning. And they say to really help ward off evil spirits and just keep yourself together. Try to always have something red on your person, either in clothing or or something in your pocket or your pocketbook. And so she always did that. It was like her, I guess her her cloak of armor. Field. So so she would disappear and go to some friends, I assume, and and, uh, and just disappear from the laundry for a few days. And as a little kid, this really uh, it really freaked me out, of course, because um, because again, my father he was there for me, and you know, and in all the essential ways, but in all the tangible ways, but in all the uh, intangible ways, he was like, he was not there. He was very absent. And then suddenly now, again, because the youngest of five, by this time, my, my next oldest brother, the siblings one through three were, by this point, were already married and out of the house. And my next sibling, number four, Herman, he was a, he was a teenager. So he wasn't around much. So 
in addition to being freaked out that my mother was gone, it made me really spend a lot of time with my father. And that was not very comfortable, just me and him, this big old laundry, again, in our big old 1970s Chrysler Newport car, and then in the home. It was very uncomfortable. And and um, and it, it just said a lot to me. And, and then we were just such an insular family, such an insular lifestyle. It was so bizarre and powerful to see my we would always enter the laundry through the back door i thought that was very symbolic of our lives I and mean, then um but then on the days when my mother would end her disappearing act she would come in through the front door and usually only primarily non-chinese and uh, customers would walk in through the front door but to see my mother come in that front door was was a, it was so alarming but so comforting as well of course it was alarming to see her come through the front door but just of course so comforting to see her come home and and uh, I learned a lot from that. And then when she decided finally she was not going to run away anymore, not pull any more of these what I called disappearing acts, she had her own little private ceremony. She took a garbage can behind the laundry and just burned that red dress. And I, I think a lot of times at, at Chinese uh, memorial services and morning, morning uh, rituals, when you burn objects, you burn elements, that's another way to communicate with the people who are no longer on our – on this mortal coil, on this human sphere. So I think I'd, it was a, her own private ceremony. She didn't tell anyone and no one was, she didn't say it verbally, but you could tell her body language. She didn't want anyone to be hard. She just, just did this herself. And when she was burning that, I was, I'd, I'd love to know what was going through her mind. But yes, that was a very intense episode. Yes. Now, something that was really comforting to read, going to true life with your mother. Explain to the audience about that. Sure. True Light Lutheran Church is uh, the only Lutheran church in New York City's Chinatown. And it, it, it came out in different ways. Like we were, I guess this is this is all coincided in the early 70s was when a lot of things just started to, I guess, uh, I guess sort of really, really um, come apart in the family. So this is when my mother started her disappearing acts. It, things were getting even worse between my parents. And, um, and so I, I felt on our own on our own parallel journeys, we were we were looking for to reach out, and um, at that time, being you know, being um, a young pop music fan in the early seventies, it was a there was so much uh, religious imagery and so much about salvation in um, in pop songs. Like people were doing covers of that gospel song of uh, "Jesus Is Just All Right with Me," and of course they had that humongous uh, song by their former Beatle George Harrison, "My Sweet Lord." People sing songs like "Presence of the Lord," so it was all over our pop culture, and I and I think. Obviously, this is still, you know, the the, the waning days of, of Vietnam. I think we people needed a spiritual and faithful faith connection, and um, I, I felt that through the music. I wasn't sure that, and I, I just felt this emptiness as our own home was being there. And obviously, my mother was going through so much with these disappearing acts. But yet, it was my oldest brother, my brother Gene. He was very religious, and he 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 got involved with uh with the True Light Lutheran Church. And so we started. We took we took his his cue and started going there. They have services in both um, in Chinese and English, and they still do. If you come to New York, it's at the corner of uh, of Mulberry and Worth Streets. And uh, <clears throat> so it's very common that we, that we found this bond there. That too, for, for, just to go to that. My, for me, it became in a <clears throat> combination of just being young. I I didn't want to spend Sundays all, all the time there. But yet, but yet, my mother became a lifelong. Um, a lifelong parishioner, if you will, of True Light Lutheran Church, and they were always took care of it. He gave, I think he gave her that sense of community and and just that spiritual balance that she was clearly lacking in our home. So it was it was very uh, it, it was it was very very grounding for her and and for me for for a while too. But my search just kept going on. But it, it was a um, it was something we we could share for a while. And also, you know, that just taps into other things where 
or the other family business. But the, for my mother and myself, that's where that came from. In the early 70s, there was, there was a real, I guess, sense of, sense of internal despair for so many of us that we needed something else. Now, the story about your grandfather in Chinatown, do you think this made your father anti-drugs? Oh, completely, completely. Like, I, I, uh, again, I never saw this, but I'd heard that, um, that uh, he, my, my father was, uh, my grandfather was, uh, he died of an opium overdose. And uh, because my, my father had to essentially identify the body that, that he, uh, my older siblings were much more conscious of that at the time. And, and, or they said he was never the same after that. And then even the smallest mention of any drug use or anything brought out an enormous tirade from even sometimes sadly literal smackdowns like he became so anti-drug and then years later this um this this came about it, it brought about a very um interesting revelation for me like as again i i felt i felt like liberated through punk rock but yet growing up in the 1970s and loving punk rock like we idolized what we called this um uh, this like a uh, this heroin chic if you will the heroin like again saying everyone wanted to be a as if they were a heroin chic junkie. No one wanted to be an actual user or an actual addict, of course, but everyone wanted to have as if they were this detached heroin chic figure. And I loved like the people, like the poetry and music of like people like Lou Reed and like Patti Smith and people like that. And uh, and and then and then I I, I was worshiping this punk rock world and, and finding for the first time a community. But yet there was this the chapter is called Chinese Rocks also and um. And when I, even just hearing about the song Chinese Rocks, it freaked me out. I thought, oh, my God, I, I guess I felt like in my young t- teenage ways, I thought maybe through punk rock, I could actually forget that I was different, forget that I was a Chinese American. But just seeing that song on an album cover, not even hearing the song, put the issue right back in my face and I had to deal with it. And many years later, I, um, I, learned, that, I learned about the impact of opium through the opium wars and just in the opium use in China and its enormous, indelible impact on the Chinese diaspora and on Chinese immigration, of course. And uh, just a side note, I'm, I'm working on an, a, new, a new piece now, what I call an acoustic punk rock and tour piece called Here Comes Johnny Yen Again or How I Kick Punk. And it juxtaposes these two things, like growing up idolizing heroin chic junkie and that whole thing. And then learning about the enormous uh, impact, how opium just changed China through the opium wars and then opium usage. So yes, it opened up many different things. And um, I never met my grandfather, but I I still, every year we, the Chinese call Hong San, like walking the mountain. We always honor, honor the uh, ancestors by bringing uh, flowers to the graves. And I always uh, think about that. All world rituals. After your father passed away, what were some of the roles that your mother had to play? Well, it, it, the whole thing changed because, uh, you know, I, of course, I was not part of the decision-making process. I was just a kid. But uh, when my father died, I was only 14. But uh, it was decided that we were not going to try to carry on the laundry. The laundry was sold. And then it, it, it totally changed our dynamic because I was essentially what these call growing up. In the 70s when I did, I was essentially a latchkey kid my whole time. When I wasn't at the laundry, I'd go, go home by myself, but my parents were always working in the laundry. So all of a sudden, it, it became different. Some ways, though, just the fact that when you don't have to work 12 hours a day, six days a week, that's a very different thing. But she had to uh, take on a lot. But also my older brother, Herman, did too. And in some ways, um, the the family structure was very hard on him, I think, because he grew up, let's say, the first um, – the first five years of his life as the youngest of the family. So he was dotted on. He was, um, he was spoiled, like as the youngest usually is. But then, then I came along and things changed. And then soon uh, 
the siblings one through three were out of the house and he became like the man of the family, especially after my dad died. He was only, he was only 19 at that time. At that time, you obviously still, you still have a lot of wild oats, so to speak. So he, he stepped up a lot too with, to help my mother. And all of a sudden, just the dynamics changed. Even being a teenager, you realize we now have a single widowed mother. It's a very different world. So, so, so this came out very differently for all of us. It changed all of our dynamics. And again, you just, uh, our, I guess our concept of what a family means and what, what a family does. 1987, going to China. Tell us about this. Yes, it was, uh, it was, it was, an, it was enormous. Like I, I finally made peace with um, being an, an outsider and just um, things opened up where I, I just said, we, we have to go to China. And I guess in, I think a lot of people in their mid twenties, it's, it's the first time, unless you're in graduate school, the first time, um, you, the mind unwinds a little bit after after living such a structured life for so many years. Of course, going through your schooling and then maybe jumping right into a job. And um, at that time, in my early twenties, I worked in the music business, the primarily the rock music business of, of uh, New York City. And and for a person in their early twenties, that was the greatest job. Um, I loved it. But then, so I get to my mid twenties, I started looking ahead and saying, "Well, you know, do I want to carry on with this? Do I want to fight to become a vice president of?" of publicity at a record company or, or have my own firm. And I said, no. And at the same time, though, I, I had never left the country. I traveled within the country a little bit. And I said, okay, I want to go. And I spoke to my mother and she said, you know, she only knew her, she only knew two things. She knew her, her farming village in Toysan, China. And then a little bit of Hong Kong as she waited to, for her, her, her fake papers essentially to come through and then uh, get on the boat to go to the new world. So she really wanted to see China too. So we, we, we went together and it was a, a fascinating trip. This is still, you know, this is before China became like the tourism juggernaut it is now. And uh, even a lot of these airplanes and the airports were like, still like the more like a Soviet base, like the small, small planes and small airports. And it was just a fascinating thing. It really opened me up to really um, talk about your identity. And um, it led to all different things too. Suddenly I, well, growing up, we did like in the late 20th century, growing up in America and in my case in New York City, we just assumed we were like the, we were like the capital of the world. Of course, America, of course, was was the, the greatest thing in the world. And of course, New York City was the greatest part of America. So it was very humbling and empowering to know that, as the old song says, it ain't necessarily so. So, uh, so going to China and seeing how this other society that I am part of, it's a strange thing for a lot of uh uh, immigrant people um, in America, especially uh, immigrants of, of uh, people of color, it's a very different world where you think, okay, yes, I am part of this and I'm not part of this. So it was just an eye-opener in every way. And um, one of the interesting, most interesting episodes is, um, it's, that's in the book is we got to visit an English language classroom of essentially what would be high school students in the American Western system. And they all started asking me, if there was a war between China and the U.S., who would you fight for? And they were, they were very adamant about it. And and then you learn that sometimes humor doesn't always translate. I'm, I said, well, I, I think I'd move to Canada. But that, that was not a good response for them. But Wow. Now, your first job, I saw you as being very interesting here because you used Alvin from the island. Tell mm-hmm. us about that. Oh yeah, so my, my first job was with the with the uh, Jamaican British record company Island Records. So I so identified with it. Uh, they're most known for bringing, of course, the great, the late great uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers to the world. And uh, I so, uh, I, it's at that point again, going just coming out of college, my professional 
and personal identity was so melded that I, 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 felt, I felt like I probably called myself Alvin from Ireland the whole time. Just like it became like all one word, Alvin from Ireland. So I really, um, so it, it was that way though too. So that's why I just identified so much with that too. Like I just love that it was, we were in the mainstream in the music business, but somehow a little different. So that, that's what that became. Now your brother leaves for LA and yes. you cared for your mother. How did that change things? Oh, that really changed things in every way. Because also, in addition to my brother, again, Herman, after nobly stepping up for so many years, you know, he's a musician and a guitar technician, so he moved to L.A. And um, at this point, too, this is this is now the 1990s. And by that point, of course, my mother was slowing down. And it really made me think about things, so too. And I, and I guess I made the choice to – it's funny. Growing up in the outer boroughs, what they call the other boroughs of New York City besides Manhattan, so in some ways, you know what it's like to grow up in both – a small town and uh and in new york city at the same time and in some ways or two like um i i, I again i found myself at, an, at another professional crossroads like similar to the one that i was experiencing in 1987 when i went to, took the trip to china and i i guess i made the choice to really slow down a little bit on on uh, on my professional trajectory at that time and we just spend more time with my, my mother and just take care of things at the house like she she could not get around she's still I don't know how we did all these years. She spoke very little English, and I spoke very little Toisan Cantonese. But we obviously we communicated, and I I still had to you know, read all her correspondence that was in English, deal with all her doctors, deal with all doctors appointments, and it really and some some sometimes I think maybe you know at that point was, things were not really in a great place for me professionally, and I think um, I got as much out of giving for her, taking care of her as I did putting into it. And it was just a, it was a very healing time, but also it, t- it took me out of step with the, uh, the, you know, I guess whatever it is or whatever people call the, the career track you, sh- you should be on and maybe think about just how the old world, the new world. And um, looking back, it, it was, it turned into be a very traditional Chinese household because a lot of Chinese, the Chinese households, uh, you don't leave the house, the, your immediate family, except for marriage. And I was not married yet. So looking back, it led to very traditional things, but that it became a very special period. And I'm just honored and glad I could be there for her all those years. Now, what does number eight mean? It always means a, a, a good luck. And of course, I guess some of the universal things, it's always an infinity symbol, the eight. And also it's, it's always became a symbol of good luck, prosperity because again you've got the infinity and lifelong and um and so chinese always go out of the way to put a, a put an eight somewhere like so many i, I bet uh instagram and twitter handles and uh emails of the a, a lot of chinese will always have to have eight if they can and they have even more than one eight so it's, it's always been a symbol of good luck because of longevity eternity now you meet wendy tell us about that Yes, um, Wendy, um, my, my my wife Wendy Wazda, she was um, she was a real theater pioneer uh, in downtown uh, New York City. Uh, I think people probably know like Tribeca is now like one of the trendiest areas in uh, in the city. But yet, uh, my wife was here when it was still dangerous, and she had a theater company. And so, meeting her was a uh, was 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 very healing. Like uh, I, I met her just on, only a few years before my, my mother passed. But yet it was, it was very vital that we made this uh, great bond, and um, somehow she really connected with 
my mother. And, uh, and, and uh, that really helped things a lot, that they, they could have that strong bond. And yet, um, for my mother's 80th birthday, she was very slowing down, but yet I, it was, I could laugh. I remember a few times uh, she would correct some of my siblings in mid-conversation saying that, no, she saying, that's not Alvin's girlfriend, that's his wife. And so I was just very lucky to find that like, we both um, had – it's a non-traditional past and, and just living the life of the arts. We know about what a different trajectory of a life that is and just the, the uh, very uh, unconventional uh, things that you have to do to have this life in the arts. And just we love the theater. Just our first conversation, just about um, all different nuances of theater. So I said we we're lucky to have that. And yet, um, and yet in that time, uh, uh, then when, when, my, when my mother passed, it, uh, it just changed everything. In some ways, uh, my mother passing also led to the, the writing of The Last Emperor of Flushing and, and exploring that. And luckily, I was able to, I, I had had this bond with, with, with uh, my now wife, Wendy. So that was that that made everything. That was in many ways my, my you know, the, the first of. Uh, deeper bonding and and it's just um and what what with her she she also was taking care of um a single mother in her later years too and then uh when when wendy's mother passed uh five years after my mother passed at least for me that really made me say okay now we have to get married i i just felt this uh primarily uh viscerally that i just said with uh, without our parents being physically in this world i i we needed that other uh that other bond if you will now, what about your music today? Oh yes, yes. I, again, I now I now I call myself an acoustic punk rock and tour. Where uh, it came full circle. For a number of years, I was not performing and just writing. But uh, but because I, I started as a performer, get in punk rock bands, and then and, um, yes, I'm old enough in the, the pre-internet, pre-MTV generations. Uh, we actually had to leave your home, leave your apartment, and go out to clubs and theaters and venues to see and experience music and, and culture, and and then. Performances were more like performance art, more open-ended. It wasn't just these slick things. To yes, they were there to promote their records, but it wasn't only to promote their records. It was just uh, you expected something more from live performance, not just a recreation of, of the latest hit or the latest uh, popular video. And so I think through that, I got my love love of the stage and the power of the stage. And so I'd, I'd always written lyrics, but I came back to it in, in the past few years. Actually, just just before the pandemic, I finally picked up the guitar again. And I started uh, playing songs, and that's in that piece I was writing about called "Here Comes Johnny Yen Again." It features songs, spoken word, and other things too. And I guess it's also spread on by about ten years ago, twelve years ago. I was, I was in what I call a, a midlife crisis rock band. We were all these Asian guys. I wanted to call it the Asian American Rock Party (AARP), but uh, a lot of people were not laughing at that name in the band. I said, "Oh, we can't pretend we're young." But that led me to how much I still love. I'm, I'm not a great musician. My brother's a great musician, but I, but I love playing and I just love the interaction of playing. And that led me to, you know, put that, I felt that if I put it in the context of a storytelling piece where it's, where there's a it's storytelling with some music in it, that that works. So I've been writing songs for this piece. Here comes Johnny Yen again, and just playing more again. I just, I just love to play. I just love music. So that's where my music is now. But I, I was, again, I call myself an acoustic punk rock and tour and a performer. Cause I feel like if you're not quite a trained musician, not quite a trained actor, but you're a writer, that's your lane. What message would you like the reader to leave after reading your book? I think that it's, it's, it's really a story of how, again, about how immigration and assimilation, how we all, we're, no matter where we enter this conversation, it impacts us all deeply here in New York City, here in America. And I think it's also looking at, looking 
about how a lot of things we're dealing with now in the, in the reckoning of the past few years of, of all about how I think as a society we're all really are reconfiguring the parameters of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I just I like to think there's a lot of the the um, the precedence of what one is at, at least from the Chinese American perspective, is there. And it's all, it's all about how we grew as a people. And I always think that. Uh, like when I when I, I also teach playwriting, I always say in some ways the environment and the locale is, is another main character. So in some ways, with all the different threads, you know, the Chinese American experience with the love of music and all these things, at the end of the day, maybe it's it's a it's a New York City story, like how immigrants thrived and not New York City is really reflected in this book, and how much it's impacted our culture at large, just from from my vantage point from being a Chinese American. So I think that's really what it's about, how how we came to be here in the city, in this country, in this world, and at this moment where we're still dealing with a lot of the same questions previous generations have dealt with. What is the next project you're going to be working on? Yes, it is that Here Comes Johnny Yen again, and I am, and I'm working on a series of uh, what I call portrait plays. Uh, the first one was published uh, let, last year. It's called Three Trees, and it looks at uh, the 20th century sculptor Alberto Giacometti and his obsession with the Japanese philosopher Isaku Yanaihara. And I thought that was very liberating to write about things where I feel like, um, again, diversity in the arts is a very tr- tricky thing, but uh, where you want authenticity, you want uh, representation, but yet, yet at the same time, I don't want to be told, that, well, you're a Chinese American. You should only write about Chinese American themes. I want to write about many different things. So this is very liberating to take that. So I'm working on a series of portrait plays. It's primarily historical dramas about artists. The first one's called Three Trees, which is published by Neil Passport Press. And it's about Giacometti and his obsession with uh, the Japanese philosophy, Sakura Yanaihara. The second one is about the um, the famous uh, woman painter, uh, Alice Neal, great painter. So it looks at her, the things she's gone through. So those are the main things I'm working on. The uh, And what started for the stage, but here comes Johnny Yen again, I think that could also work as, as a book. So I'm trying to work that into a prose format too. That sounds great. We'll be looking forward to that. And uh, thank, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking about all these wonderful things. And I, I so admire your podcast. I'm honored to be one of your subjects. Thank you. Thank you.